Nine million fewer workers are employed today than a year ago. Tens of thousands of small businesses are shut. State and local governments are planning deep cuts. This is a war against America's working class. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are joined again by Professor Richard Wolff. He talks to us every week in this weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. And we'll talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of the people and the planet come first. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many, many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining. We we want to talk about the the stimulus package so-called that has now passed both houses of Congress. You know, it's it's interesting. Donald Trump said that he wanted to send $2000 to every home, but his advisors and aides talked him out of this wild and crazy idea. Earlier, uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC the more progressive liberal uh, or social democratic uh, folks inside of the Senate or in the, inside the House of Representatives had called for $2,000 a month to be sent. But finally, when you look at all of the, the way this allocation is broken down, uh, individuals will get $600 one-time payment. I mean, that's not the only thing that's in the stimulus package. But when you consider that the average monthly expenditure for a family for food alone is $680, the average expenditure for housing, $1,700, the average monthly expenditure for transportation, $895, for health care, $430, education, $120. That's in one month. That's the average. And so the stimulus so-called check is $600 per individual. Let me respond first with a little story. In countless novels, movies, you see the following kind of scene very often. There's a desperately poor person begging by the side of the road. Suddenly, a very wealthy person ambles by. The beggar asks for help and the wealthy person reaches into his or her pocket, pulls out a nickel, 
and hands it to the beggar. The beggar looks at the nickel, throws it in disgust on the floor, and says words I can't repeat to the rich person. If your answer to that story, or if your response to that story is, well, a nickel is better than nothing, then you have forgotten what it means to be a human being, or a human being in need, or a human being who is asking for help from someone who can easily afford to be genuinely helpful. The humiliation, the outrageous hostility that is shown by giving such a person a nickel, that's what I want people to think about when they look at what the Congress just did. And I, I put away my economics hat and I put on my hat as just another citizen. It is outrageous. Let me give you a couple of examples beyond the one you've already given very well with the $600 absurdity. When an economy goes into a crash of the sort we're in now, people are desperate. When you have a pandemic that has killed 300 plus thousand of our fellow citizens, people are rightfully scared. If you have those two horrible experiences at the same time, which is what we're going through in the United States, you have an unprecedented social, economic, and health crisis all at once. It demands an extraordinary reaching out. One of the particular things it demands is to enable the places where most Americans live, cities and towns, to provide extra public services to offset the unemployment, the collapsed businesses, the boarded up main streets that we're living with. By the Congress deciding not to give large sums of money to cities and towns, you have effectively undercut the ability of our cities and towns to do what they need to be doing, what they should be doing, and what a rational economic system would have them doing. And the answer given, it makes the outrage worse. Here's what the Republicans say. We don't want to reward cities and towns that have mismanaged their affairs. In other words, we're starving the cities and towns that our people need because they didn't manage the city. Please notice with me that a few months ago, when much larger sums were doled out by the Treasury and by the Federal Reserve, to the business community of the United States. No one, no Republican and no Democrat, raised the question, gee, we shouldn't reward the businesses that didn't manage their affairs appropriately. You know why they didn't? Because it's very hard to figure out who's managing correctly and who isn't. And it is no time to do that during a crisis of these dimensions. So it wasn't done with the businesses and no one said boo. But when it came time to helping the public, helping the cities and towns to offset what business could no longer do, 
Well, suddenly we're being scrutinized to see how the city's managed. That is fake news of the worst sort. You know what it is? It's an attempt to make sure we all understand. Helping business is the number one priority of both political party establishments. Helping the mass of people, whether it be with $600, which is trivial, or with starving cities and states, that's perfectly okay. And you come up with the most ridiculous excuses because what you're really doing is making sure that the mass of people are so desperate, are so squeezed, whether it be with low wages or it be with eviction or it be with a shortage of public services, that in desperation, they will eventually go back to the employer willing to work harder than before for less money than before. That's the reason all of this is done. Capitalism is in trouble and it takes care of those at the top and the rest pay the price. Capitalism is an economic order, but it's it's peopled by people. There are capitalists and then there are the rest of us who work for people who employ labor unless, you know, someone has a small business or something like that. But for the vast majority of the population, uh, we try to get a job. We hope we get employed. We hope somebody who is the owner of capital will hire us so that we can make a wage or a salary such that we can cover basic elements. Uh, in the capitalists, and, and right now for you know tens of millions of people, I started this show by announcing too that a nine million fewer people were working now, now than a year ago today. But for the capitalists, this has been a pretty a pretty good ride for most of them. There was a a Washington, and I'm talking. My point being, there are capitalists. There are actually human beings who are very happy and who are benefiting greatly during this crisis, and who in fact are benefiting because of the crisis. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, came out last week. It's uh, 45 of the 50 biggest U.S. companies turned a profit since March. Biggest companies, coronavirus and layoffs. That's the subtitle. Here's some of the ridiculous quotes, but ridiculous in one sense, but you know, accurate in another and, and reflective, indic indicative of what the real thinking is. Quote, I don't think we've ever been more excited or energized about our prospects, close quote. PayPal finance chief John Rainey said in a November conference call to investors. Here's the Nike chief, John Donahoe. He told analysts for Nike in September, these are the times when the strong get stronger. Here's a quote from the uh, piece, the article. Berkshire Hathaway, that's Warren Buffett's company, raked in profits of $56 billion during the first six months of the pandemic, while one of its subsidiary companies laid off more than 13,000 workers. Now, again, we're always taught in, in celebrity media, which is all media, that we're supposed to you know, genuflect when we hear the name of Warren Buffett and bow before his great sagacity 
and uh, ability to 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 make the right decisions, the right call about inf- investments. Here's Cisco Systems. Uh, they cut their sales force by a thousand. Um, uh, no, Salesforce cut their staff by a thousand. Cisco Systems cut thirty five hundred workers. Uh, and again, PayPal, which was bragging about the how great it is, they cut more than a hundred workers after their chief executive uh, vowed not to do so. Walmart, whose CEO spent the past year championing the idea that businesses, quote, should not just serve shareholders, in other words, something better than just making profits, something, I don't know, truistic, something altruistic. Nonetheless, Walmart distributed more than $10 billion to investors during the pandemic while laying off 1,200 of its corporate office employees. I mean, there, we're, it's not just a system. This is a system where people are involved as capitalists, as owners, and then the rest of us who do all the work. Uh, and when you think about how the system has rewarded a few and punished the many, it gives you a sense of the human dynamic here. Go ahead, Professor Wolf. Let, let me be a little scary, if I may, and apologize in advance. A system that works like this, that uses a time of exquisite suffering, millions inflict, uh, suffering the flu that we're living through, hundreds of thousands dying, tens of millions losing their job. And let's be clear, since March, over 60, 60, 60 million people have had to file for unemployment compensation. What does that mean? Well, that's more than one out of three workers in the labor force of the United States. For at least some weeks, those people had no money at all. The time between losing your job and when your unemployment compensation kicks in. They were unemployed in some cases the entire nine months, last nine months, in some cases just a few weeks. But when you're unemployed and you have no money for a few weeks, you dip into whatever savings you have and use them up. You lean on your friends, your family, your relatives, your community, your city, if it has any money, to help you through a hard time. When you go back to work, you're minus your savings, you don't get those back. And you have debts to your friends and relatives who themselves are facing risky employment and health problems. You are crippled. You need help. You're not getting it. And a society that doesn't give it is a society that is in trouble. But a society that doesn't give help to the mass of people on the scale I just said, that also at the same time enriches the people who are already the richest in the community, that's obscene. That is the worst imaginable injustice a society can commit. And here's my scary thought. I don't think capitalism in this country will survive this performance. This can't be hidden. It can't be 
pushed aside. Step by step, Americans are learning that the stock market is a lunatic, speculative, crazy place. Let me give you an example. Right now, if you take the value of the Tesla Motors company and you add up how many shares are outstanding multiplied by the price per share, the market value, the capital value of Tesla Motors is greater, about $615 billion, is greater than the sum total of the value of the seventh seven largest automobile producers in America, in the world, Toyota, Daimler, VW, Ford, GM, and so on. Now, Tesla produced last year 500,000 cars, half a million. How many cars were produced by those other, the big seven? You ready? 60 million. But the company that produced half a million is worth more in the stock market than the combined value of the seven companies that produced, ready, over a hundred times more cars. That's not an efficient allocation of resources. That's speculative craziness. And when you see that, you're beginning to see a system falling apart. We all can see it around us in the boarded up streets, in the desperate people. But now we can see it also in the Congress passing that bill over the weekend. Let me give you one example. $25 billion is set aside for the people facing eviction. Now, here's some hard numbers. According to the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., we have somewhere between 9 and 10 million people facing eviction for unpaid rent at the end of this month. What the Congress did was appropriate $25 billion to help these people, it said, and it pushed the date of eviction, allowing them to happen from the 31st of December to the 31st of, of uh, January, one month. Okay, I did the arithmetic. Suppose you spread the $25 billion across the 10 million households facing eviction. That works out to $2,500 per household. That's not enough to cover the rent they already owe for the past. It does absolutely nothing for the future. It means that in the next three to four weeks of January, you're going to reimpose on these people the same desperate anxiety that they have been living through for the last half of year as they come to this moment. And if you remember that landlords are allowed not only to add up the rent that folks haven't paid, but to assess interest charges and penalties that make the rent even larger when it is paid in a delay, then you can understand they have done nothing, let me stress that again, nothing to solve the eviction problem. 10 million households, that's 30 to 40 million people in our society are being told you're on the edge of homelessness. Mr. and Mrs. Smith and your three children.
where you will be 10 times more likely to catch COVID, where you will suffer destruction of your education for your kids and your credit standing and everything else. This is an assault on the mass of people, the likes of which I have never seen since I was born after the Great Depression. I've read about it, but we are reimposing the worst collapse of capitalism, the 1930s, on ourselves now. And again, the scary thought. Is it unjust? Sure. Is it outrageous? You bet. But this is a system that is destroying itself. It is making itself so ugly, so odious, so unfair that I don't think it will survive. I was speaking with um, Willie Baptist. He's a longtime organizer of the homeless in the United States. He's been doing it for decades. Uh, he's not homeless now, but he had been homeless at some point in his life. Uh, he's an amazing organizer, thinker, uh, socialist. And uh, he was, I was asking him about what they're doing right now because the union of the homeless that he has helped recreate is growing all around the country. And they, they're on the front lines. They go wherever people are both homeless and organizing to fight back. And he told me that, Willie told me the face of homelessness has really shifted uh, recently, not just during the COVID, but in the last few years. And he said many, many more white families many more families who are not in urban areas. He said, you, you know, the, the image of who is the homeless person that you, if you're in a big city, sort of see sleeping on the steel grate, trying to stay warm at night or in a makeshift sort of cardboard box-like dwelling. Uh, the, the image of a single, maybe uh, older male person, someone who perhaps has other mental health issues or drug-related issues, uh, you know, they're because of the failure of society, uh, millions of people who could be helped if they had a home, that basic sort of essential thing that all humans need, uh, but who has been cast out and as a consequence of not having a home, isn't really able to access services or treatment and all the things that human beings in, in distress and duress need. But he said, now it's families. He said, even in the, the, the camp fire, that big fire, that wild fire caused by the failures of the California um, corporation that is in charge of the, the heat and electricity for the state of California. Uh, he said, you know, during that fire, large numbers of families, mainly white families, people who would have considered themselves not just working class, but middle class, lost their homes and they had nothing to fall back on. They had no savings. There was nothing there for them. They have formed their own in, sort of enduring homeless encampments now, and they too are organizing with the Union of the Homeless. Uh, I think it's it's very important for the, the racist and demonized caricaturing of homeless people uh, which is so dominant and and sort of treats homelessness as if that's uh some somebody else that's the other 
uh, there but for the grace of God go I, but I have been saved from that tormented life. And, and really, the torment of homelessness, which is a policy choice by capitalism, is spreading, it's widening, it's not necessarily a plan, but there is neglect, and there are priorities, and as such, it is, in fact, a policy choice. Uh, do you agree? I mean, I know you're doing, Willie is on the ground organizing the homeless, but in terms of your own studies, your own evaluation, how do you see it? Well, I see it in two ways. I'm reminded as you talk that we had homelessness of white people, for example, in large numbers, families, in the Great Depression of the 1930s. And one of the things it provoked was that arguably um, one of the great writers of the American, of American history wrote a book called The Grapes of Wrath about a family that is homeless, has to leave its uh, Ozark origins and travel in a broken down jalopy all the way to California, hoping to be warm, hoping to find something somehow, somewhere. And the travails of this family become one of the great novels the generations of American students are asked to read. It produces great movies and so forth. Here we are again. We need another novelist to write us another Grapes of Wrath about the horror of what this society, this economic system is prepared to do, to savage the lives of working people who've done no one any harm, who ask only that there's an economy for them where they can do work and earn an income sufficient to put a roof over their heads. When you have millions of people without income, without a job, and therefore without a home, that's not a failure of those people. That's a failure of an economic system. The system has to provide the jobs, the housing, and all the other attributes of civilized life. And if it can't, or if it won't, it is, by definition, a failure. And if it has the capacity to do all those things, which the U.S. has, and it still doesn't do it, then it's not just a failure it is a criminal enterprise. It cannot be justified. And sure, Mitch McConnell and people like that will come up with verbiage to make it all look, smell, and sound reasonable. But you know, having been a product of the elite schools of the United States, I have friends among the people running this society. And I can assure you, they know perfectly well what is going on. What they say to the media to get by is one thing. What they understand is something else. And their real excuse, for example, when I talk to them, is, yeah, you're right, but if I didn't do it, somebody would come and replace me who would do it. 
So I want to keep my job, so I do it too. Do you feel bad, I ask? Yes, that's why I go to church on Sunday. You're living in a society, you and I both, where these things that we are discussing, the $600, the absurd failure to solve the city and state revenue problem, the absurd eviction fakery, these are signs of a system so broken that at the same time that Jeffrey Bezos's personal wealth goes from 130 billion to over 200 billion, 60 million of his fellow citizens used up whatever savings they have for whatever period of unemployment they suffered. If you took away 180 billion of Jeffrey Bezos's 200 billion, you would have an enormous pot of money to help tens of millions of people. 180 is almost eight times the total amount laid out for helping the people, the 10 million facing eviction. You would leave Jeffrey Bezos with 20 billion, he'd still be among the 50 richest people on this planet but you would have helped 10 million others. What morality, what religion, what ethics could possibly justify what is going down in the United States? And to imagine that no one gets it, no one sees it, no one registers it, and no one stores it up in that place in all our minds where rage against injustice builds, that's a naivete I'll leave to our Congress men and women but they have acquitted themselves with hideous injustice over the weekend. And that the Democrats went along, that Pelosi and Schumer could not find a way to ask the people of the United States whether this failure, this outrage was or was not intolerable, which would have filled the streets of, this, of the cities of this country as quickly as when that happens in other countries. That is the failure of a political system that is now so deeply embedded in capitalism, it can't even see its own self-destruction. The system is, is a system of corruption as well. Uh, I'm looking at the coronavirus relief package. White House secures three martini lunch tax deduction in the draft of the relief package. By the way, it's you know this is when when capitalists or business people go or agents of them go to have business lunches and they have three martinis in uh, a long lunch and they're talking business and getting drunk or whatever that becomes a tax deduction that they can take. Now that's been a, a focus of anti-corruption measures, so that it's no longer three martinis, Richard. There's progress. It's only going to be one and a half martinis. Uh, that uh, we, the taxpayers, we, the working class, pay for. Uh, you know, there are 204 millionaires in Congress. That's, I actually think that's a conservative number. Uh, 204 millionaires. 50% of the U.S. workforce in 2019 earned less than 35000 If you uh, survey Congress and ask the, ask how many people in the U.S. Congress make 35,000 or less. 
Because if it's a democracy, if it's a representative democracy, and 50% of workers make less than 35000 certainly they should have some representative in Congress. But guess what? Not surprisingly, there are no people in Congress who make less than 35000 The poor, in fact, are excluded from Congress. The working class is excluded from Congress. They're not in Congress. We are not in Congress. Richard, your organization, Democracy at Work, you know, when you think about that strong, powerful name, and then you think about, uh, we, t- we talk about America as a democracy of, by, and for the people, but not one person representing this half of the American workforce is actually in Congress. The words of, by, and for the people, they don't mean all the people, they mean some of the people. Anyway, uh, let's just talk in our in our wrap up here about the the tortured character of this kind of democracy. I approach it uh, slightly different, but it it's complementary to the point you're trying to make. Most human beings in this country, as in most countries, most adults spend most of their lives at work. Five out of the seven days, the best hours of those five days you're at work. And if you add the time you take to get yourself ready in the morning and to uh, transport yourself to the workplace uh, and the recovery from it at the end of the day, well, we know that the workplace is the number one physical place that adults spend most of their lives. If you want to call yourself a democracy, the workplace would have to be democratized but it never has been in the history of the United States. When you go to work, when you cross the threshold into the factory or the office or the store where you work, and it doesn't matter whether you work at home or on the premises or some mixture of them, when you do that, you give up all democratic rights. Here's what happens in virtually every business organization. A tiny group of people at the top, they might be called the owner of the business. They might be called the major shareholders if it's a stock company. They might be called the board of directors who are elected by the major shareholders. But whatever it is, it's one between one and 20 people who are telling what? The employees what to do. The employees are almost always a much larger number than the employer ever is. The employees are told, this is what you work at. Here's how you use your brains and your muscles. You make this product or this service, and you do it with this technology that we provide to you. And you do it where we tell you to do it and for how long we tell you to do it. And at the end of the day, when you go home, whatever you've helped to produce belongs to the employer. Your job is to go home, have a beer, have a pizza and come back tomorrow and do it all again. You work for us. We decide what you produce. We decide what technology you use. We decide where the production happens. And we decide with the profits all of you helped to produce. 
You have no role. You are excluded, you employees. You do what we tell you. You live with the results of the decisions we make, which, by the way, can include firing you. You have no control over us. You don't elect us. You don't approve what we do. You are without any power. That's not democracy. That's the opposite of democracy. We think we got rid of kings centuries ago. We didn't. They just moved from the palace into the office of somebody we call the CEO or the board of directors, where we have little kings presiding over the enterprise. For me, that is the clue to the problem. Because if you have no democracy in your economy, where you work, you don't have the, the development of the appetite for democracy where you live. You don't really grasp democracy. You don't come to demand democracy. You don't really know what it is. So of course, large numbers of Americans disconnect from politics. They don't have any interest in who's running the society because they are taught every day at work to have no interest in the people making the decisions that will determine whether you have a job or not because they do what they want for their own profit. You just live with the results. The way we've organized our businesses is a training program in getting people to accept the absence of democracy. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf, that's W-O-L-F-F dot com. Professor Wolff, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, and I hope I wasn't too verbose, uh, but the... This behavior of our Congress over the weekend really is one step beyond even what I had imagined would be the response of our quote-unquote leaders. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.